if you would, to the book of Romans in chapter 3. The book of Romans in chapter 3. It is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week leading up to Easter. There is no more glorious subject for us to be discussing in these days than the very gospel itself. As we continue to study what uh, has often been called the Mount Everest of the Bible, Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, it is a very glorious passage. Let's read it again. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In Revelation chapter 20, we have a description of the great day of judgment as it was revealed, <clears throat> excuse me, as it was revealed to the apostle John in a vision. Excuse me one second. I have this allergy thing going on and it's all draining in my throat and I know many of you can relate. So. Excuse me. <clears throat> in Revelation 20, John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. He saw us, folks. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And John goes on to say, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Imagine yourself standing before the awesome throne of God. Imagine the books being opened. These books contain the record of the lives of every human being who ever lived. We were created to be God's image bearers on this earth. And now the day has come for you to give an account as to how well you represented your Creator in this life. These books include not only every act you've ever committed, but every word you ever spoke. 
every thought you ever entertained in your mind, every attitude you ever maintained in your soul, every inclination of your heart from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death. Dear church, what will God see when He opens the books concerning your life? All that we have seen in the book of Romans, not to mention your own conscience, should preach to you that what God will see is wickedness and sin. He will see impatience and ingratitude, dark thoughts and bitter words, seemingly good deeds tainted by wicked motives and self-centered attitudes, no reverence for God. This is what God will see when He opens the books concerning your life unless, as we learned last week, something has changed. Unless something has happened in your life. Could it be possible that when God opens the books concerning your life, He will see a little asterisk by your name? And that asterisk will say, See the book of life. And could it be that when He then opens the book of life, and turns to your name, he will find written these words concerning you. Perfect in patience. Perfect in love. Perfect in gratitude. Perfect in obedience from the heart. Perfect in compassion. Perfect in fairness. Perfect in justice. Perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. Could that be what God would see when He looks at your name? Could it be that page after page after page of the book of life includes the names of millions of people from the days of Adam to the days that Christ returns whom God declares to be righteous and perfect, holy as He Himself is holy? Could it be that when God looks up your name in the book of life, He will not see your sins. He will only see the righteousness that Christ accomplished as your representative two millennia ago. Friends, this is the doctrine of justification by faith. When we acknowledge our sinfulness and see that we have no other hope when we turn to Jesus and throw ourselves upon His mercy, His righteousness becomes ours in the eyes of God. His righteousness is reckoned to us. This isn't sanctification. Sanctification is, is when the Spirit comes into our souls and begins to actually make us holy. Justification is a legal term. It has to do with the courts of heaven. It has to do with whether or not you are found guilty before God. Justification declares you are not guilty because of Christ. Work. 
then because we have been declared not guilty, because of Christ's work, God's Holy Spirit is just to come into our souls, into our minds, into our hearts, and to make us the kind of people we must be if we are to see the glories of heaven. Justification, being declared right with God, makes sanctification, becoming actually righteous, possible. Justification secures our sanctification. Indeed, every blessing that comes as a result of salvation ultimately comes as a result of us being declared righteous in the eyes of God. Justification secures every other blessing of God for us. You see, if we are not declared not guilty, if we remain guilty in the eyes of God, God is unjust to bless us. As a pure and righteous judge, He must condemn the guilty, not bless them and make them His children. It is an evil judge who pardons the guilty and and makes them His children and blesses them and gives them rewards. It is only because of justification, us being declared righteous in the eyes of God, that God is right when He blesses us. It is only because of justification that God can be both just and the justifier. As our own confession says, justification brings us into a state more blessed of most blessed peace and favor with God and secures every other blessing needed for time and eternity. You see, it is those whom God justifies that He will ultimately make holy and bring into heaven. It is those whom God justifies that are His and will be with Him forever. The most important question concerning your soul and my soul this morning is this one. Are you justified? What is your legal standing in the courts of heaven? Where do you stand with God? Has the righteousness of Christ been reckoned to you? As we come to verses 23 and 24, verses 23 and 24, we see that Paul wants to stress something very important. He makes clear at the end of verse 22. So look at the end of verse 22. He says, For there is no distinction. The main doctrine of these verses is that justification by faith is the only way of salvation for all people. There is no distinction. Justification by faith is the only way of salvation for every person who has ever lived on planet earth in the history of the world. No distinction. There is no distinction between the way that Jews must be saved and Gentiles must be saved. And this is what he is saying in verses 23 and 24. In verse 23, very familiar verse, you probably know this verse from memory. Verse 23, he reminds us of what he's been teaching ever since Romans 1.18. 
He is reminding us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Emphasis on the word all. No distinction. Jews, you are not the exception. Jews and Gentiles, all have sinned. Jews and Gentiles and all sinners are under the wrath of God. What does it mean that we fall short of the glory of God? Notice the present tense. We, we, we haven't just done this in the past. We do it now. We continue to fall short of the glory of God. What, what does that mean? My own understanding, my own thinking is that what Paul has in mind here is the purpose for which God created man. Namely, to bear His image and to imitate His own glorious character on this earth. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the glory of all that He is. We're we're talking about His wisdom and His love and His strength and His righteousness. Man, though not infinite like God, was created to have dominion over this earth and to exercise those same qualities. Man was created to glorify God by reflecting in our own lives His own attributes. We were to be in micro what God is in macro. By sinning, we have failed to live up to the purpose for which we were created. Every day we fall short of the glory of God that He he created to see in us. I'm not sure that came out right. Let me say it again. Every day when we sin... We fall short of the glory of God which ought to be proceeding forth from us. We fail to display appropriately the glory of the God whose image we bear. Does that make sense? We fall short of the glory of God that ought to be seen in the way we walk and talk, the way we work, the way we care for others. We fall short. But Paul's main point in verse 23, is to get us to verse 24. That is, Paul has already established verse 23 in 1.18 through 3.20. He has spent so many verses establishing 3.23. He, now he reminds us that all have sinned because he wants us to see that just as there is no distinction in regards to depravity, there is no distinction in regards to salvation. Just as it is true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so then it is true that all must be saved the same way. There's not two paths or three paths or four paths or a plethora of paths. There's one way of salvation. And it is justification by faith. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here is the one and only way of salvation for all people without exception, justification through Jesus Christ. Martin Luther famously said that justification by faith alone is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. 
It has also been often said, and it is true, that justification by faith alone is the doctrine on which you and I stand or fall. The Roman Catholic Church continues to teach, even in our own day, a very different doctrine, a very different gospel than the one that the Apostle Paul laid down here. That's why the Reformation happened. It was a recovery of the gospel. It was a recovery of the way of salvation. And so I thought it might be helpful to help us understand what we believe to contrast it with the teaching of the Catholic Church. This isn't to pick on the Catholic Church. I want to be clear that there have always been some within the Catholic Church who believed and preached the true gospel. There have been many who have been saved from within the confines of the Catholic Church. Even just in recent days, I've learned about bishops and friars who were burnt at the stake by their own church because they believed the gospel. So I'm not picking on Roman Catholicism to be mean to it in any way, but but I think it will help us to compare the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church with what we believe as Protestants. Because that is what we are, right? We've we've protested. What what was that about? What, What was all those thousands of deaths about? I know there are many in our day who think that these debates are silly, meaningless, and that nothing is at stake. But folks, when it comes to the gospel, everything is at stake. These debates are not silly. Heaven and hell are at issue. Correctly understanding justification is so important that if there is any subject, if there is any subject in the Bible that we should be careful and thorough and take the time to make sure we've got it right, this is the one we must have right. You don't want to stand before God on the last day and find out you've got this one wrong. Justification. It sounds like such a big word, and I'm afraid it's... Everybody just say justification. See, it's, it's not a scary word. It's not. You need to know this word. It's in the Bible. It's not, a, it's not a theologian's word. It's all over the Bible. It's very important that this is a part of your vocabulary. Let me give you a brief overview of the Catholic teaching concerning justification. And then I'm going to help you see how we differ. The teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that justification is the righteousness of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, infused into our souls. The teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that that justification is given through the church. So that justification begins with baptism and then continues with other sacraments of the church. And each time a Christian participates in the sacraments of the church, more of the righteousness of Jesus is infused into the soul of the Christian. As long as the Christian remains this way, he is safe. But if the Christian commits what is called a mortal sin, the Catholic Church has a list of what they declare to be mortal sins, If you commit a mortal sin, then you lose your justification. The way to be re-justified, 
The way to have justification returned to you is to perform penance. The Christian must go to a priest. He must confess the mortal sins that he has committed. And then the priest assigns what is called works of satisfaction, which the person must do in order to have his justification returned. So the person sinned, lost his justification, he goes to a priest, confesses to the priest, the priest, as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, says, I absolve you. Now you must perform these works of satisfaction, and upon the completion of these, your justification will be renewed. These works of satisfaction might include saying a certain number of prayers to Mary, might include giving alms to the poor. In Luther's day, if you knew that you were going to be committing a mortal sin later in the week, you could go ahead and do your work of satisfaction ahead of time. People gave money to the building projects of the Roman Catholic Church. And in return for their donation, they would receive a document called an indulgence. And this indulgence declared that once they committed a mortal sin and lost their justification, the money that they had paid served as a work of satisfaction by which they could have their justification back. So you confess your sin to the priest, and then you show him your indulgence. No harm has been done. Admittedly, most Catholics today look back on this practice as abusive and wrong. It was very prevalent, however, in the early days of the Reformation. If a Catholic dies, having committed a mortal sin, having lost their justification, and having not yet offered penance, the only hope is purgatory, whereby the works of satisfaction can be brought out of them through suffering. The Catholic Church does teach that certain people have been so righteous that they have more than enough righteousness to be right with God. They have spillover righteousness. They have extra righteousness that they do not need. This is what they call supererogatory merit. This extra righteousness that these particularly righteous people do not need is placed into the Catholic Church's treasury of merit. And the Catholic Church then has the authority, they believe, by Jesus Christ to apply that extra righteousness from saints to people who are in purgatory to help them get to heaven sooner. There are more than two, but there are two key differences between the Catholic understanding of justification and our understanding of justification that I want to make very clear. We're just going to see the first one this morning. And I hope you will help, this will help you understand why this is so important and the preciousness of the gospel. Number one. Let me read this very carefully. You think about it. Roman Catholics believe that Christ's righteousness is infused to the believer. Protestants believe that Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer. Catholics infused 
Protestants imputed. Uh, children, teenagers, if you had a vocabulary test and your teacher asked you, what is the difference between the word infused and the word imputed? What would you say? Do we know what those two words mean? Imputed, infused. To infuse something means to inject it into something. So if I have a needle full of medicine and I give myself a shot so that that medicine goes into my veins, I have received an infusion of medicine. It has actually been poured into me. It has gone into me. In the same way, Catholics believe that when Christians take part in baptism, when Christians take part in Mass, when Christians take part in the other sacraments of the Catholic Church, the righteousness of Jesus is actually injected into their souls. The word imputed, which is what Protestants believe, simply means to attribute to another. That's Webster's definition. So, let me speak to kids again. Suppose your brother or sister is throwing a baseball and breaks a window in the house. Imagine you get blamed for it. Imagine that you get punished for breaking the window, though it was your brother or sister that did it. That crime was imputed to you. You were treated as though you had done it. It was reckoned to you. Or, suppose that your brother or sister raked the yard. Now imagine that you somehow got credit for having raked the yard. Suppose that your parents reward you for having raked the yard. What your brother or sister did has now been imputed to you, reckoned to you, and you are being treated as though you did it. That's the meaning of the word imputation or impute. According to Protestantism, and obviously I I think this is right, and we need to make sure we have it right, when we believe on Jesus, that very first day when we open up our souls to Christ and we say, I need you and I'm depending on you, you're my only hope. In that moment, when we believe on Christ, His perfect righteousness is not infused in our souls, but it is imputed to us. Our souls don't suddenly become righteous when we trust Jesus. In fact, we don't change at all. But our status before God changes. We are treated by God as though we had done all the righteousness which Christ did 33 years of His life as our representative. We are treated as though we were the ones who were obedient to God from the heart for a lifetime. And so Luther said that Christians are both righteous and sinful at the same time. We are counted righteous in the sight of God, though in this life we remain sinful. We haven't changed, but our position before God has Now, the most important question for us to ask is this. Is this true? 
Why should we believe that justification means Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and not infused to us? I would submit to you that if you took time to look at how this word, justification, is used in the Bible, throughout the Bible, you will see that it never has the meaning of infused righteousness and that it very often has the meaning of imputed righteousness. Let me show you just a few examples. I hope you're with me on this. I hope you understand how important this is that we get this right. Let me begin in the Old Testament. Let me show you how the Hebrew word for justification is used. Look at Exodus 23 and verse 7. Exodus 23 and verse 7. Here in the law of God given to His people at Mount Sinai, we read this, Exodus 23, verse 7. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Does everybody see that word acquit? God will not acquit the wicked. That is the word justification in the Hebrew. God will not justify the wicked. Church, what does it mean for a judge to acquit someone? When a judge acquits someone, does he infuse righteousness into them? Or does it mean that the judge declares the person righteous? When a person is acquitted, when a judge gives an acquittal, he is not making the person innocent, but he is declaring the person innocent. And that is what justification is. It is a declaration of God that we are right in His sight. Look with me at Proverbs 17. Let's see it again. Proverbs 17 and verse 15. Proverbs 17 and verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Friends, what does it mean in this verse to justify the wicked? Is God saying that anyone who infuses righteousness into a wicked person is an abomination to his sight? Or is God saying that anyone who treats the wicked as though who he were righteous is an abomination in God's sight? To justify in this verse clearly means to declare righteous, to treat as righteous. Now, wait a minute, Justin. <laughs> Look at the verse. This says that anyone who justifies the wicked, who who treats the wicked as though they were righteous, that that person is an abomination to the Lord. So if declaring the wicked righteous and treating sinners as if they were righteous is an abomination to the Lord, how can that be what God does? I mean, you're saying that's the gospel. And this verse says it's an abomination to Him. How can the gospel be about God treating the wicked as if they were righteous if this verse clearly states that God hates that? Well, friends, that's the right question to ask. 
Because that's what the next two verses in Romans 3 are about. And we're not there yet. We're going to get to them. But that's what verses 25 and 26 are about. Right? And I'll just go ahead and give you a hint. It's what the cross is about. It is the cross that makes God just and right to treat the wicked as though they were righteous. All right, let's keep going. Um, one more. Let's, let's just swim in this doctrine of justification. I, I want you to see that it means to reckon, to account, to, to impute righteousness, not to infuse righteousness. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I know many of you love Isaiah 53. I, I know that is a, a precious chapter to you. It's still absolutely astounding to me how the, the suffering and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and the gospel of Jesus are all prophesied here in Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before it all came to fulfillment. But I want you to see verse 11. Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Speaking of Jesus. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be infused with righteousness. Is that what it says? To be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That phrase translated, make many to be accounted righteous, is the Hebrew word for justification. New American Standard Version says, My servant will justify the many. ESV just explains it. My servant will make the many be accounted righteous. So friends, I hope it is evident that before we even get to the New Testament, the idea of justification is not the righteousness of Jesus infused into our souls, but the righteousness Jesus of Jesus credited to our account before God. And I hope you see the implication. Because if it's infused, the way the Catholic Church teaches it, it can be gained and it can be lost. It can be gained and it can be lost. But if it is written into the book of life in heaven before God, it can never be changed. And you don't have to live every day wondering, am I justified or not? Because it's written in the courts of heaven. And you can live every day with confidence as a child of God. All right, just to show you that this is how Paul uses the word, look at Romans 8. Romans 8. Verse 33. Romans 8 and verse 33. But who shall bring any charge... Against God's elect, it is God who justifies. Dear friends, what does it mean to bring a charge against someone? To bring a charge, does that not mean to declare that someone has committed a crime? Is a charge not declaring somebody criminal or wicked in some way? And yet, how can anyone bring a charge of wickedness Against God's people. That's the question. How can anyone charge God's people, the elect, with wrong? To which we might say, it's easy. People do it all the time. 
How many times have you heard people say, well, you know those Christians, they're all hypocrites. You ever heard that? That's charging God's people with wrong. But dear friends, none of those charges that anybody or even Satan himself can bring against God's people will actually stick. Not one charge that Satan can bring against you or anybody else can bring against you will lead you into the condemnation of God. Why? Because it is God who justifies. When God declares someone righteous, they are righteous. There is no supremer court. There is no higher court of appeals to which you can take your case. Bring any charge you want. If it is God who says He is righteous, that's justification. Being declared righteous. If it is God who declares righteous, what are you going to do with your charge? There's only one thing you can do. Drop it. Oh, is that not encouraging? Satan has no charge on He cannot wag his finger and say, you've done this and you've done that and you've done this and you've done that. If God has declared you righteous, then you are righteous indeed. I want you to especially see that when Paul uses the word, it's in a legal sense. It's in the context of a courtroom. It's in the context of charges being brought against us. Justification is a legal manner. It's not about making someone righteous. It's about declaring someone righteous. And it's only because we are justified by faith, declared righteous in the sight of God, that we will be made righteous in sanctification and be taken safely to heaven. Oh, I hope that makes sense. Is that clear? There's so much I want us to know, so much I want us to understand, so much I want to be clear. But this, if nothing else, we must be clear on this. Here is where we must stand. When a person believes on Jesus Christ, that very moment they are declared right in the sight of God. No baptism needed. No penance needed, no mass needed, no purgatory needed. All that was needed for us to be right with God was the perfect work of Jesus Christ, which He accomplished fully and completely in His life and in His death. So let me close with this implication. Why is it so wonderful to understand that justification means imputed righteousness and not infused righteousness because imputed righteousness is once for all time. That is, unlike those who believe that justification is a process where you can gain it and you can lose it, you have to do certain works to get it back. The true gospel says that once you are justified, you are justified forever. Once you have believed on Christ, your standing will never change. There are no mortal sins whereby you lose your salvation and must work to have it back again. If God has decreed you righteous, friends, God's decrees do not alter. God knows your every sin. God knows every sin of your past. God knows every sin you'll commit today. God knows every sin of your future. And yet if He has declared you righteous, He declared you righteous knowing all of that. No sin you commit tomorrow is going to surprise the judge and make him rethink your justification. He already knew about it when He declared you right. 
Your salvation was accomplished by Jesus Christ and his righteousness is more than enough to make up for all that you lack. The righteousness of Jesus will never change. If you have ever truly believed on Christ with a God-given faith, you are utterly and eternally saved. 1 John 1.7 If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. All sin. If we are walking in the light that is looking to Jesus, who is the light of the world, all our sins are forgiven. We are right with God. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we look to Christ in faith, He forgives all our sins, past, present, future, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of His perfect work. The Christian life is not an unsteady ship in which we are constantly gaining and then losing our good ground with God. The Christian life is a very steady ship that holds together through every storm of life because our position with God does not change. We are forever His child and He will forever be faithful to us. Christ is our righteousness, and if Christ is our righteousness, He will never change. That righteousness will never change. And so when I mess up tomorrow, when I say that angry word to my wife, when I fail to pray as I ought, when I fail to treat my children the way I should, when I fail here and fail there, I don't have to fall into despair and say, oh, God certainly doesn't love me now. Oh, friend, through Jesus Christ, His love for you is always and forever. And it never changes. It is not fickle. It is strong. It upholds. Do you have confidence in your good standing with God? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone and know that by faith you are justified in God's sight. And then you can face this world as a child of God, ready to fulfill your callings in the strength that He provides. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.